Okay, hello. Today I am joined with Sharon Deckel, an assistant professor at Mass General Hospital. Sharon, do you want to go ahead and introduce yourself? Thank you so much. This is so excited to uh, join this podcast. I am um, a faculty member of Harvard Medical School, assistant professor promotion in the promotion process to associate. And my lab at Mass General Hospital in the Department of Psychiatry, I study maternal mental health during pregnancy and in the postpartum period, focusing especially on cases of birth trauma and how the birth event might result in developing post-traumatic stress disorder. I lead clinical investigations and translational studies to better characterize and develop state-of-the-art interventions and early assessments to prevent what we call childbirth with APTC. Okay, so I recently read a book by Rachel Aviv, and it's called Strangers Unto Ourselves. And it's a it's a book going through different people, profiling some different people in their mental health struggles from their perspective. And one of them was actually um, a young woman who had postpartum depression. So how prevalent is it? That's a great question. Um, prevalency is, is somehow tricky to define when we talk about maternal mental health disorders or what we call maternal psychopathology because we know that mental health is a lot of stigma and people often do not report symptoms in the case of postpartum women who have mental illness following childbirth, very much likely to women not to, to underreport their symptoms. Possibly they're not even assessed for their conditions. Overall, based on research, we know that between or close to one out of five women will suffer from either minor or major depression following childbirth. So that's 20%. That's a significant portion of women. And we also, there's a lot of evidence to show that a woman who is developing a psychopathology following childbirth really increases the risk of health problems in the infant, especially developmental delays uh, that would also impact on the health of the child as the child becomes an adult. So the idea of early on preventing maternal psychopathology to improve the health outcomes of the mother and her infant. Okay, so 20% and then that's underreported. You know, could be anywhere up to 30, maybe even 40 percent, you know. In some countries, you know, there's research, for example, in Iran and and, in, you know, regions in Africa, then these rates possibly are even higher. Do you have any hypothesis or any idea why it would be higher in in those areas? We talk again a lot about this idea of of, of stigma, underreporting symptoms, access to healthcare. Um, you know, we talk about motherhood and the idea, idea of the identity of, of the person and how being a mom in different cultures might have a certain kind of type of identity. So there's there's a lot of reasons. Possibly in, in more low resource uh, regions of the world, there is less access and less awareness of mental health conditions. So these conditions are not really screened. People maybe don't even know that they're suffering from depression. So the rates are just very, very high due to, I think, lack, lack of access to treatment. And so can you go into your research a bit more, like some of the findings and um, areas where you would like to go or, you know, or even, you know, some kind of a project that you would like to do, but it, it's sort of slightly off the beaten track? Because um, there must be one of those projects that you have that you're like, oh, I really love it if I could get the funding or a little bit of funding to do that. I have, I have so many studies I would like to do above and beyond my, my funding and above and beyond the, the means in terms of the resources um, of my personnel in the lab. Um, currently, 
One of our exciting studies is an imaging study. So, you know, to your question, why are people suffering from mental health? Why are the rates uh, so high? We really are trying to understand the neural mechanism that in this case, it would be for PTC fallen childbirth to be able to develop and identify biomarkers. Or there is in psychiatry, as I'm sure this audience knows, there is really no um, biomarker that has led its way to the clinic. So our assessments are done based on reporting. And the more we would know the hardcore biology, which in this case we're talking about, when we talk about mental health, we usually are talking about brain disorders. So we really want to understand the maternal brains. This is a very exciting um, and important study that is currently being conducted in my lab. One of the studies that in the, is in the pilot phase, so we have all the IRB approval to conduct the study. We have even our collaborators is to really study maternal mental health, not only among women who reside in the U.S., but possibly open the research into kind of more global mental health. And we develop this collaboration with a team in Nigeria to study PTC falling childbirth, especially because we know that rates of what we call um, near miss, women who almost die in the context of giving birth is much higher in Africa, including in Nigeria. And there is sometimes, um, unfortunately, more frequently than not, a lot of what we call uh, violence in the course of giving birth by the providing team. So we really feel there's so much need to educate the providers and to collect data to support the possibly heavy toll of underrepresented women who live in these regions of the world and uh, pending more support uh, funding that is something that we would ideally move into not only the pilot phase but usually but actually expand it uh, above and beyond this kind of preliminary phase of data collection and have you got any results so far? Do you have any hints of, of how it looks? We are, we are just collecting data. I, I'm, I'm very eager to look at the data because what I know so far is just from anecdotal cases of my collaborators at this hospital. They shared with me these very I would say, um, you know, really mind-blowing stories. You can't even imagine this is what's happening to women in some places in the world, but these are stories. These are cases of people. So I think there's any way, and I think MGH and Harvard Medical School is uh, in a great position to empower women, possibly all over the world, through improving their health outcomes. So I'm really excited to see these results. Yeah. Is there anything that you have found so far in your research that, you know, I'd say you would recommend because um, I know that you're a clinical psychologist as well, right? So, so you must have some ideas, you know, what you would say to women who are pregnant or thinking of getting pregnant, you know, if they're worried about this, you know, is there a way? I mean, is there a way of like, I'm not preventing it or, or be, I mean, I guess it's just being aware of it. You know, without saying anything prematurely, I would say there possibly is potential for prevention. And actually recently received, as of uh, early February, an NH funding, NH award to test a brief psychological intervention given to women who experience birth trauma and seeing whether this early intervention in the first days following childbirth could actually prevent their PTSD. So I would, for an audience who, or for people who actually might had, have a birth trauma or feeling very anxious during pregnancy, about their forthcoming delivery, I would first suggest speaking with a specialist, speaking with a mental health provider about their anxiety, self-disclosing. I, you know, in, in 2017, I began studying birth trauma and, and maternal PTSD. I am based in the North Science Division in kind of the larger PTSD 
program. And I am, um, to my knowledge, the only female uh, investigator. So it's an idea of studying maternal PTSD among my more senior male colleagues was something that was, I think, that kind of was somehow not really clear what, why, why I'm focusing on this. Can birth actually be so traumatic, like going, going to war? Clearly today we know there is enough evidence to support um, the fact that birth could be very traumatic. Um, so I, along this, I see, in, and I continue to see in all my studies that we have women who present with, you know, what we call full bone, blown PTSD, which would mean that a psycho, psychologist, psychiatrist who does an evaluation for these people would definitely say they have PTSD, not because another trauma, but because of birth. But most people never talked about the traumatic delivery, never received treatment. So this is something I every time find very surprising, the limited awareness and um, the limited resources, even if the resources exist, knowing what to do when you have the symptoms, who you can reach out to. So definitely I would suggest as soon as possible when you're feeling that things are not really are kind of out of the ordinary to speak with somebody and to see a health provider and to see a mental health provider to see if there's any need for um, kind of a pretty regime routine intervention to ideally prevent PTC. But we're, you know, we're, we're doing the research in order to develop better tools for early screening that would be really accurate. So we don't want to screen everybody and tell everybody they have PTC fall into childbirth. Uh, and also coming up with more interventions that are really robust and can even prevent PTC, which possibly could possibly with the right timing and the right intervention for some individuals could be preventable. Yeah, because also, you know, it's not as with so many things that, you know, it doesn't just affect the woman who's giving birth. I mean, there's an infant there. There's other, perhaps other children as well and partners, you know, other family members who then have to, you know, step in somehow as well. I mean, it's, it's the yes. repercussions are uh, huge. Yes. Yes. In our study, we, we are assessing maternal mental health. We also assess what we call kind of mother infant attachments. How are women making these early emotional connections with their babies, which we know this kind of maternal attachment is really important to support opt optimal child social emotional development. So we're assessing the, the mother health, the maternal, maternal attachment and the child development. And we do see that when we talk about maternal PTSD, it's often comorbid or co-occurs with impairment in parenting the child and develop this mother-infant attachment because the way we think about PTSD is a condition that is evoked by reminders of trauma. In the case of maternal PTSD, the baby could become a traumatic reminder and therefore the mother might eventually have a very difficult time taking care of her baby and you know, our research supports this. Yeah, like, I mean, in animals, right? If there's something that kind of disrupts the flow, they reject the, uh, the young. Exactly, exactly, exactly. But there's, you know, there's just a lot of silence around, you know, maternal PTSD. There's really in psychiatry, there is a DSM, which is a statistical manner for all the mental health disorders. In many ways, maternal PTSD doesn't exist. There is no PTSD with a postpartum onset. So again, we're hoping that through this research, um, we will increase awareness, education and knowledge. And for the women who have had PTSD and then they've been treated how do those outcomes look have you looked at that you know do you have not enough not enough studies um but um most likely if you are receiving the appropriate treatment you're likely to recover and then if you're considering getting pregnant again this might be you know if you're kind of possibly beginning your pregnancy from a very good place um i, th so I think you know that this uh vicious cycle of maternal psychopathology leading the woman to reject her baby. You see the maternal PTSD, mothers, one of their 
common complaints is they don't want to get pregnant again. They fear childbirth, including people who this would be against a religious religion. And early treatment, possibly effective treatment, possibly could buffer this very vicious cycle. Uh, so I would most likely women who are receiving treatment have better outcomes for themselves and for their babies. Yeah. And, you know, the more I think about it, the more I'm, I am aware that, that this is something that isn't spoken about. You know, like, I guess that women really don't talk about their childbirth you know, their experiences. I mean, once in a while, I mean, somebody will say, oh, it was, it was a long labor. And then I had a cesarean. And I'm aware that once that happens, you have an emergency cesarean, there's a whole lot of trauma that's gone on for the woman. Exactly. In terms of trying to, to give birth. And, and it's not like you're going to go in for a scheduled cesarean, which, you know, in, I understand that surgery, it's, there's a lot of recovery from that. But you've got all of this other um, physical trauma exactly. or the, the surgical trauma as well. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, we, we see that, um, you know, we did a lot of, we do very in-depth interviews and we interviewed hundreds of women in the lab at Mass General. And again, the common theme is I never spoke about my traumatic delivery for people who had, who gave birth 10 years ago and, ha- and are suffering from PD- PTSD. PTSD, by the way, is very comorbid. It co-occurs with depression. So often complication of maternal PTSD is actually also suffering from depression symptoms. And this comorbidity is, 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 could, could really have debilitating effects on the woman's health. So this idea of, of not talking about your birth trauma, not disclosing to your partner, to a provider, to your circle of friends is, is unfortunately very common. And I think in part because people feel, from what I see in my research, women say they feel shamed. They feel guilty that maybe what happened to them is because of their doing, that they somehow failed. And they therefore they have uh, unplanned cesarean or an emergency cesarean, their body failed them. They don't want to traumatize their friends who are about to have a baby. And, and just like it's a very, everything is kept very secretive. And that is definitely not helpful for mental health. Because the mental health, one, I would say the early stages of recovery is actually disclosing what is happening to you with people you think could support you. You know, it's that thing about talking about it. Anything, you know, that's difficult that you think is... It's hard, but once you share it with one person, you know, it hopefully would get easier if, yeah, it, you know, now thinking about it, it's, there's so few people who, who do say, you know, you don't, you, you don't say, oh, well, well, how was your, you know, birth? I don't say to my next door neighbor who had a baby, you know, well, like, so yes. how, how was it? How was it? You know, was it traumatic? You know, I don't really expect her to say anything, you know? Yes. But I feel like things are really changing in the right direction when it comes to maternal mental health. You know, I joined Mass General, Harvard Medical School, um, in 2013, so almost a decade ago. And I believe that assessment for depression at Mass General during pregnancy and the postpartum is something that kind of was emerging around that time. But before, like 10 years ago, and there was really no recommendations of screening for mental health conditions during pregnancy as a routine care. And, and now it's definitely done. I, it's a high recommendation in the U.S. and I believe it's implemented in definitely the majority of the hospitals in the U.S. So we are really heading in the right, in the right direction. And, you know, NIH, who um, is uh, supporting our research, there's a lot of recognition that mental health matters. Mental health improves mother outcomes, infant health outcomes. And it's a lot of need for more research. And everybody knows this is the case these days. So it's, it's a lot of support, which was very different in the past. Yeah. And um, 
So your lab, you you have a pretty big lab, correct? Currently, we have uh, 18 members. Um majority are full-time some part-time we have um, people who are more senior like postdocs we have several crcs we have uh, students who come from harvard Med- from harvard university during their their we could have doctoral students and master level students and other students who come from universities uh in the boston area who do their own kind of independent research we have a lot of existing data that we collected in the past and people students are taking their time to develop their own studies under my supervision most of our lab actually currently Currently, uh, exclusively, it's it's all women, and we try to as much as we can to be inclusive. And um, I think people in my lab, I would say, represent individuals who come from different cultures, speak different languages, um, different minority groups, and this is something really that is very important for our lab to promote a lot of diversity. So, one thing I'm interested in is how you have transitioned to. You know, I know that at the instructor level, you know, it's generally you're on your own doing your own research. And then once you start to become more senior assistant professor, then now you're managing, you're, you're no longer at the sort of quote unquote bench. And so now you're managing the lab. How did you find that transition? You know, I, uh, it just kind of somehow happened. Um, and the, the, I think there was, a, there was a lot to learn to, to manage, um, people and especially young people. And, um, you know, we, we've been pretty good in, in, I find that the people who work in the lab, it's like a fit. It's like anything in life. There has to be kind of a good chemistry. And I feel that we were very fortunate that, that those who kind of worked in, have been working in our lab in the past and currently, they have a lot of passion to the work we're doing. So I, I, I feel that, you know, people who, let's say, are first year um, undergrads in university, they come to the lab, they, they're they're interested in learning more about maternal mental health. And then I feel like they kind of pick up the vibe in the lab. And that has been making, I think, this idea of, of mentoring a lot of people much easier because people are, I feel like we're all in this like one big mission of really improving the research on maternal mental health to improve um, the care of mothers. And so there's a lot, there's a lot, there's some kind of a small sense of family, which I feel like has been helping me managing people who I kind of, how are kind of, I'm, I'm supervising them because they're very much kind of part of this one bigger group. But there are, you know, there's a lot of responsibility again, especially when there's young people and how do you, you know, ensure that they are really um, kind of working in the pace that they want, they are achieving their goals in order. Most people who come to my lab and are in the undergrad level, they want to head to medical school or to grad school. So we try to do our best to really support their um, kind of professional growth by having them, getting them exposed to different studies, having them join manuscripts, even as first authors, presenting their work in conferences and and the same for our postdocs. So I think overall has been quite, um, you know, very uh, fulfilling, meaningful experience. Uh, I think that it's helpful when there, and this is something that has been developed, Mass General, that there is um, several opportunities to get some more knowledge about this mentee-mentor relationship and how can you like embrace on it and, and optimize it for both sides. And I think knowing um, the challenges and, and things that could make this relationship grow as much as possible is very important. So any, I think I would support uh, any faculty member, anybody who's in this relationship of managing people to really find ways to um, be involved in, in all kinds of more of educational activities to learn about what it requires to be a mentor. So what would you say would be the sort of difficult side of things? 
difficult side of things. Wow. This is, uh, I think for me is, um, I often consider um, the people that I work, I don't really see them based on their academic title. Um, so I have high expectations from them. And um, possibly some people maybe don't have the passion that I have, or, you know, they're coming because they just want a six month to be in the lab and then they want to go back to the university. So ideally understanding the expectations that, you know, what are the goals of a mentee, the postdoc vis-a-vis your goals and what is your expectations? I think it's something that is is good to discuss uh, ahead of time and possibly also midway to really kind of make sure that people are getting at the end of the year or at the end of two years, at the end of five years, that they are where they want to be and where you want them to be based on, you know, who they are and, and their own desires eventually. So you have to, I think it's like, you know, parenting, you want to push towards success, but at some point you have to give people their own autonomy to grow and, and you know, develop it as they would like. Yeah, it, it's sort of like that, um, that thing where you can see somebody's potential and you want to push them towards that potential. But if they aren't ready to, to be pushed or they, you know, they're resistant to it, is the point at which you have to say, okay, I have yeah. done my part. Yes. And I think, you know, for, for some people in my lab, um, and I guess, as I said, most of them are women, uh, people who define themselves as women. Um, sometimes there's an issue of self-esteem. And again, this is, I, this is just kind of who I am personally, intuitively. I, I, I try to, as much as I can to empower them. And, and sometimes it's, it's difficult, especially for people who, you know, maybe they are the first generation that, that goes to college. So I feel like my mission as their mentor is not only by making sure that they understand the man, the manuscript they're reading or knowing the, you know, different protocol of the study, but also some kind of, and I guess that's my clinical psychology side, making sure that they are validated kind of more as a people in the lab too. You know, as you know, this reminds me when I, I think like 2014, maybe I received the Clafton Award. This is a award through uh, MGH ECOR to promote women in science. Um, usually women in science who have mothers, actually women, people who are taking care of, have young kids. And um, I remember I, I went to the ceremony at Harvard Medical School with my three girls at the time. My oldest at the time was uh, five. I have three girls, um, twins. And uh, at the time, the twins were two and my oldest was five. And there was like this slide that showed the percentages of women faculty by academic uh, degree assistant, associate, a full professor, women by gender. So you can see, I remember kind of, and my five-year-old who's very academic, she's like, mom, you look at this. It was like, basically the instructor was almost like 50-50. Assistant, I think was already like, maybe I'm not sure hundred percent. This is also 2014. I hope things have changed. It was lower. So it was, you know, it wasn't equal, but not, but the gaps were not so big. I think associate was around like 30% and full professor was maybe 20% females. And and my five-year-old, her name was Anna. She was kind of making this comment and observation of like, you know, where are all the women, what are they doing? So um, I think again, this idea of, as going back to your question um, and the challenges of a mentor, like how can you really empower the next generation. Yeah, I think that that is a question, right? Where, where are all the women when you start to go um, up the ranks? Like what does happen to them? Or why do they, I don't know, get left behind or something? But it, but it is challenging. I'm, I'm sure, you know, the audience, our Harvard Medical School community of, of women would are aware of, of the different challenges. And uh, I, as I mentioned, I joined uh, MGH in 2013. My older was, my oldest was five, my twins were two. So that was, it was a very uh, busy time in my personal life, uh, as well as uh, working in the lab. That's a lot of young, young people to have around, to, especially twins. 
So in terms of the JCSW, when did you join and why did you join? And also what benefits have you seen or, you know, what kind of things do you like about it? I would say I'm a pretty new member. Um, I joined in during the pandemic. Um, you know, I always actually wanted to join. I read about the, you know, this association. It seems to me so powerful and, you know, life has been always so busy. And during the pandemic, I, you know, have been receiving these recurrent emails, invitations to join from members. I said, why, why not join? So I joined um, the community engagement subcommittee. Yeah, you know, the benefits is, is being part of this uh, larger, very powerful community, which um, really includes women who are doing all kinds of exciting work at uh, Harvard Medical School from, you know, fact, research and non-research. I think that's just very powerful for me to um, be part of this of this group. And, you know, the, the mission of how can we um, kind of support women in leadership, you know, I, I I do research, but I'm, I'm I'm very much involved, interested in getting more involved in educa educating the next generation about you know personal growth and work life balance, and this is like all seems to me very much relevant to the mission of the um, Harvard Medical School Women's Association. So you you mentioned there like the personal development or you know professional development of the younger generation. Like what kind of things do you see for them or you know what kind of programs would you suggest for them? You know, you know at, at Mass General we have the um, postdoctoral association program. I think this is how I'm not sure the formal official name. Uh, I've been a mentor in in this program for several years actually since 2016. It's open to, you know, postdoc uh, regardless of her gender. And I think that's a very um, important association that having this. Um, so kind of we are serving as mentors, but we're not their academic mentors. So it's not I don't necessarily guide them on on the content of their like grant proposal. But it's, you know, more about, like you know, work life balance matters. We talk about, you know, this kind of more agenda moving forward from a postdoctoral position to instructor positions. So there's a lot of support of the overall general career trajectory. And I think developing more of these kinds of initiatives um, at Harvard Medical School, at the affiliated hospitals, I think is very important because people often they're just, they don't know a lot of things and they're in these very important junctions to make important decisions. And just people who already maybe made these decisions could really provide some input. Yeah, so hearing from others who've been in similar situations would be really helpful. So I know that you had told me that you are from Israel originally. And, uh, and of course, I asked you about your um, military service, because I always think those things are so interesting how somebody has. And I know that yours was mandatory, so you had to do it. But for people who have had some kind of military background and then are now doing something completely different. But did those two years have a, a lasting effect on you or, you know, did, do you bring anything to from that experience to what you do now? I think it's a great question. I, I actually have never really contemplated about the impact of the army on my life and on my professional professional trajectory, I think in part because for people who live in Israel, everybody um, for the, the vast, vast majority actually goes to the army. So it's just like you're going to college. So why would you necessarily think how this really shaped your life? I was in the Air Force. I The, the two years were, were actually very, very interesting. And I think possibly there are many ways it has impacted me as well as the fact that I'm originally from Israel. Um, I'm sure that has impact, impacted, is impacting my identity living in the U.S., 
If there is one effect, I would say it's this idea that you are, you know, you're one person working in this kind of bigger, for this bigger purpose. Clearly the purpose of army is all kinds of people. There could be diff- different purposes. Are there is even an army? Why do we need an army? But that's like not, not our focus today. Um, but this idea that you're working towards a, like an important mission is something kind of, it's kind of very much the opposite of an individualism and this idea that you, know, you're, you're, you have a purpose for the purpose of a society. Um, I hope, I'm, I really hope that the research that we are doing has a purpose not only for myself, Mass General, but also for the larger community, in this case, um, postpartum individuals. Uh, so I think this idea of giving back to the community by being part of a, like a larger mission is something that maybe has been kind of also influenced by my two influential years uh, when I was, you know, back then 18, going to the army for two years and then being, um, I was on a re- reserve duty for uh, several years also. So when I was like in college, uh, so that's definitely a significant uh, chunk of time. And I think also I, I, Actually, I have recently I've been using the example of the army <laughs> with a member with a, my uh, the people in my lab. And, you know, I tell them that in the army, you know, you have the you know, you have you have your army shoes. There is always um, you had to have, you know, you have to wear uniform. Uh, you know, your shirt has to be tucked in. There is a belt. Your shoes have to be shined. I slept in the camp for two years. So, you know, you have to fold your blanket in a certain way. And, and I remember at some point when I was 18, I, you know, the more I became senior towards kind of the end of the two years, like, you know, who really cares how much my shoe is actually polished or not? What does it really matter? I'm not like in, you know, it's not like they're presenting me on any kind of stage or it doesn't really matter. But I tell my students it does matter because this is part of discipline. So, you know, when we are working in the lab, when there are these small things that we need to revise a document because there is something about the image or, you know, there is something that we, in the content of, the, of this specific sentence for IRB, which clearly the the content of the sentence is very clear, but I think making sure that there is a discipline, that there are standards, like doing very small things that possibly are insignificant, possibly impact the entire way of orchestrating your your research. So I think that might be something that I possibly have earned in the army to, you know, make sure that these small things are are really kept because this is like just good um, habits for how you manage larger and more important tasks. Yeah, it's it's sort of like on the on the face of it, you know, making sure your shirt is tucked in, that you know, your shoes are shined may seem insignificant in the grander scene, scheme of things. But I think what, to your point about being in the military and the larger purpose of it, it is about making sure that these details are kept in check. Because, I mean, I, you know, if we're going to talk about the military, then, you know, it's a life or death situation. It could be, you know. Yes. So that's I mean, that's an interesting parallel to bring to you know to say okay you know we've got to make sure these details are correct because every time because we don't want it to be this one time where it's going to hold up a project. Yes. So I know you mentioned you have your three girls. So when your daughter said to you, she's five years old, and she's saying, "What happens to all the women?" You know, as you go up to professor, what did you say to her? I actually, you know, at the time, again, she was very young and I tried as, as much as I can to just explain to her as is, you know, what I thought this is basically 
usually women are the primary caregiver um, and just there is a lot of other demands and, and you find yourself making these decisions and therefore you decide this may be not the best path for you. So it was, but it was clear to her and, and my younger um, daughter, Sophie is one of the twins. She recently gave a TED talk and she, she's very um, math oriented. So she gave a TED talk about um, the fact that there is not a lot of women in STEM and faculty. So I think it's kind of, you know, clearly part of this idea that it's clear to them it's not a matter of ability but it's a matter of opportunities and a matter of you know how much you can you know you have the support to make it work you know this is something that also my my postdoc fellows ask me especially i have you know had a postdoc fellow who um she currently is not in my lab she was a postdoc fellow and had three young kids and i think it's it's just it's a very tricky combination going to be a mother the way you want to be a mother and also focusing on in this case you know your academic career and integrating the two is really really difficult and uh, this idea that it's just you know you can just do it it's actually not so simple um and you know when she asked me like if i have any guidance for her how, how to do it i think it's just really hard um i think we need just to find better ways to support women uh, mothers to be able to you know climb up the ladder if you know to ensure that this slide that we saw about the prevalent rates of female versus male uh full professors at harvard medical school eventually would be 50 50 and maybe it has since 2014 i don't know the statistics exactly but most likely not <laughs> so i think it's very tricky what's the secret to making this work. I don't know. People have their different arrangements. I, I know that in my case, um, my partner, my husband put in a lot of help to support us. And that was very, very helpful. Without his support, maybe at some point I would find this very, very challenging to do. Would you ever have considered staying home and putting your career on hold? That's a terrific question. And I would say yes. I had the privilege to take very long maternity leave after the birth of my older child, I, you know, for a year. I actually, I had uh, my own funding. So, but I was like between postdoc and, and moving to the U.S. and uh, becoming instructor at Harvard Medical School. So I was, I was like in between these, uh, this, this transition and, and I had my own funding. So I had my salary support and I could kind of work on my own pace through this external grant coming from a private foundation. So that was like a way to maintain some academic engagement, but also to be, to have very, um, um, light workload. And then um, when the twins were born, I, I again had some kind of external funding and, and I my pace was very, very, very slow. And I think that was kind of my decision to to really take these very extended maternity leaves. I think it's possible to come back, but like everything in life, I think everything in life has a price. Uh, you lose some, you win some. And and I think there is some there is something very powerful to um stay at home. Like I think a matter of what fits your personality the most, what are your resources? Uh, again, a very, I think, complex decision to make and possibly what is right or wrong varies by person. So one question or two questions that I've been asking people is, you know, what's one professional skill and what personal skill are you working on or you would like to work on? I think uh, definitely a uh, professional skills is time management. Um, it's just, you know, as you be, as you have more people you manage and you are in a given term or we have, you know, at least five studies, uh, three usually are really active at the level of recruiting participants. So we do, we do clinical research. We have like humans, there's a lot of work and we have like, you know, 
two more studies that we have a lot of data sets that we are just like revising and developing manuscripts. There's just a lot of, a lot of opportunities, a lot of great research questions to ask, a lot of collaborations from with other universities, with international investigators. I'm on the board of the Marseille Society of Perinatal Mental Health. It's a, it's a large perinatal mental health organization international. I, I chair the, it's called the Postpartum Trauma Group. Uh, it's part of the International Society of Traumatic Stress uh, Studies. There's a, a lot of engagements at Harvard, at Harvard and MGH and outside of MGH. Very, very busy. So how, what would be the best way to manage these um, opportunities, but also maybe sometimes saying, no, this is like too much. I think I haven't really developed a, a good system for that. Um, and also knowing how to manage my quality time. I think sometimes I, I know the research never ends. So I could find myself revising a manuscript at midnight, even after midnight, working on a grant. Again, there's no, there's no nine to five. Um, and I think sometimes something that is important to, to remember to actually keep it nine to five, which I haven't really found uh, the way to do and, and making sure that, that the more um, vacation time is really uh, a true vacation. I think that that would be very important to, to, to know how to develop and maximize. Um, so that's also kind of in my, I think, uh, personal life. I, during the pandemic, we, we live close to the Charles River and during the pandemic, I began um, running. I, I didn't really exercise a lot before the pandemic and I really am enjoying uh, running. I try to run almost every day. Um, and, you know, I've been, I'm involved also in research at MGH in which we study um, the effects of exercise on the brain and mental health. So, you know, as I am, as I'm getting more uh, informative of, of the robust impact that exercise has on mental health, that it kind of even encourages, encourages me even more to actually commit to this uh, physical activity and I, which I really enjoy. So, you know, hopefully at some point, maybe I'll find myself, you know, training myself for the marathon. Maybe at some point there's something I, I, I hope for the future to have some kind of a purpose, um, which is focuses more on my hobby, not only uh, my career. So what kind of hobby would you, would you like to do? Like, you know, if there's anything that you, you wish you knew more about. I think painting, you know, I, I, I haven't, um, I have, you know, I, I took painting with my mother paints. Um, my aunt, uh, has painted, uh, I have a lot of family members who have even a family member who is a professional painter. There's a lot of paint painters around me. Um, I sometimes paint my, one of the twins paints and we sometimes paint together. We sometimes go to the Metropolitan New York and we just uh, look at one of the photos and we, and we come up, we come with our own markers and we paint very, you know, very, not, nothing uh, too sophisticated. And um, I'd love to learn more and maybe um, take like more formal classes, um, which involves uh, painting. Yeah. You know, the, the more I was thinking about, as we've been talking about your work, um, how much does it get talked about this PTSD? I mean, I, I know that, you know, it, it is not spoken about, but just thinking about it, because um, I was thinking of Serena Williams. Exactly. Yes. Yes. But it, it's sort of, you know, that what she went through. But yes. But she did and other celebrities and I was actually interviewed on uh, NBC Today show. Other celebrities spoke about their PTSD. In regard to childbirth, there is so there is more and more awareness, but still relatively limited. In the fall in October, I was a keynote speaker uh, for the American Association of Anesthesiologists. I gave them a talk about PTC phone childbirth, so the 
obstetric anesthesiologists they are actually present in the labor and delivery um they are those they are, they actually are receiving giving the epidural and and you know, and, and other um medications uh so that this was the first i think presenter that was coming from the field of mental health to kind of educate um these uh, providers um i gave a webinar for the Texas um, Department Health, it would be for OB providers, obstetrical providers. And again, I think that was their first initiative of bringing a mental health provider who talks about PTC. So I think hasn't really been talked about. People didn't, don't really know about it so much, including delivering women. But there is really, I think, a trend towards more knowledge, more research, more awareness. Um, but again, as I mentioned, uh, I began studying maternal PTSD, maybe that was around 2015 or so, like two years after I joined, uh, MGH and, um, some people, even the majority of people in kind of my larger team basically, um, didn't really understand why I'm actually studying this. They thought it's, it's extremely rare that if a person had, has birth trauma, maybe she's like an hysterical mom who really has a lot of psychopathology before she gave birth. Today, these people tell me, wow, you really chose a great topic because nobody's doing the research and we are possibly really, um, you know, collecting a lot of important information to fill in a critical research gap. Um, but some years ago, it was like, why would you even consider birth to be uh, like trauma, like going to war? Um, so I'm very happy that we chose actually to to focus on this uh, research uh, initiative. Is there anything else that you would you want to say? Because as we start to wrap up the conversation, you know, first of all, it's been really a, such a delightful experience to to talk about myself and my research. And your questions were were terrific. Made me kind of making me already think about things as I'm going to run in an hour about you know. But this idea that I really uh, see. This is, I think, true for our organization and, you know, Harvard Medical School at large is really uh, such an important asset for the world and for women in the world. And like, how can we, you know, really make our ideas become into real concrete actions? And um, how can we make sure that we are empowering women, especially those who who are part of more vulnerable groups uh, in, my, in my research? Again, birth trauma is is more common among Black women, among Hispanic women, among people who are poor. Um, we don't know enough about these people in terms of research because we have less access and research to these people for all kinds of reasons. You know, my vision, this is what I wish my, for myself, uh, this was kind of the new year, that at some point at Master Adenol, or, you know, if this was, would be part of Harvard Medical School, that's fine with me, to uh, develop a center in which we would uh, study and treat women for PTC, fallen childbirth and birth, birth trauma, in which the treatment is offered for free. Because, you know, I know in my research, if there is treatment, it's treatment that is coming part of the study. So that's usually a very a subgroup of individuals who are subjects in our research for which are the researches involves treatment, but other studies don't involve treatment. So we do our best to facilitate um, referrals for in-house treatment at MGH or in the community. And again, many people have a difficult time finding the provider. People don't have the right insurance, or even if they have the right insurance, just understanding what the insurance allows them and the reimbursement, it's just so complicated. And when you have a mental illness, part of having a mental illness is having very limited initiation. So um, if there is eventually... Uh, a way that we could build a center, um, which would require, you know, definitely a lot of uh, support from somebody who would want to give to the hospital. I think eventually in a in a good world, we'll have treatment that is really offered almost or, or free for many people who really, really would benefit. I think for the benefit of the mothers, their babies and their society. 
Yeah, so your vision is towards having a center for maternal mental health. Focusing on, on birth trauma. Part of the research is, is in being in the research, you, but you will receive also therapy for free that is not necessarily part of the research, but that, because we know there are treatments and there are enough, there are providers definitely in Boston who could work at such a center. We just need, you know, somebody to support the center to be able to offer treatment for free. And especially because, you know, since the pandemic, we know that remote or telehealth is actually very powerful. So it's really feasible. I think we just need support for, for free therapy. Yeah. So whoever's listening, if you want to donate a large sum of money towards having this um, vision come, come to life, then uh, please contact us <laughs> and let us know. That, that would be, that would be, yeah, I think that this is the kind of world that I would like to live in that, you know, people who, you know, regardless of who they are, really have access to care. Not only that we document the disparities, which we have been, but actually doing something very concrete to um, close these gaps. Thank you so much for doing this. Pleasure.